Welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Mags, welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Bob, <laughs> thanks for having me. Uh, my absolute pleasure being here. Well, you're the first person who's actually been requested uh, to come on to the podcast. It was Melissa from LWC. Her study group have specifically asked for me to interview you. So you've, you've actually got a baying audience of people who want you. <laughs> okay. No pressure whatsoever. Right? No, not so, at all. Yeah. So, yeah, so don't fuck yeah, this up. Right? Yeah, let's get on. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. Well, so I always ask people in 30 seconds or less, can you tell us who you are, what you do, and why you're qualified to talk about what we're going to talk about? Okay, so um, my name is Max Janjo. I've been in the industry for about 15 years now. Currently a wine importer, wine educator. I teach level threes and fours for WST in Bermondsey. And I'm a master of wine student, as you well know, Bob. We are kind of trudging our way through that, uh, that self-inflicted pain, but uh, it's fun. Yeah, fun. Well, fun's a word. <laughs> it seems to be taking forever, but uh, yeah, it's COVID, yeah. COVID is an excuse, I suppose. Um, so there, yeah, there's a few things I wanted to, to ask you about. Uh, one, obviously, because you just started your own company in the middle of COVID, and um, yeah, you know, it'd be interesting to you know talk about that a little bit. Um, but obviously, you've been an ambassador and scholarship winner, so congratulations uh, for diversity. Thank you. So it'd be good to ask a few questions on that um, kind of first. I mean, I suppose <laughs> a good question is: Have you got a nice exam definition of what diversity is and what it should look like? There isn't. There isn't one. Um, it's just we know. We know. Huh? Everyone will, will have an opinion on this topic, right? And and as you can imagine, it's a, it's a conversation which I've been having quite intimately with different different key stakeholders in different positions, uh, from 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 buyers looking to have a more diverse portfolio to recruitment and HR management um, uh, managers who are trying to, you know, kind of. I want to say move the dial in the right direction. So, you know, when, when people talk about, well, what does diversity mean or what does it look like? But the easiest way I kind of say, I kind of explain it is going, let the wine industry or let whatever industry might be, be an adequate representation of the world that you live in, right? You know, you take, you take London, for example, which we, we, we both kind of you know, stomp, stomp on those particular grounds. And it's a very cosmopolitan, very vibrant city. Same thing with Manchester, same thing with Birmingham, some of the cities which we, we, we sell and import or export. No, no, import wine too. Um, you go into a wine tasting in these cities, right, Bob? You open the door of whoever it might be. And the road that you've walked to get into that building for that tasting, the, the faces you've seen are unrepresented in that building. I don't know if that makes sense, right? So you walk into these, these tastings and it's like you've almost traveled back in time. And it's like, well, why is that the case? Because you take industries like the beer industry, the spirits industry, which, in my opinion, or, or something like the cosmetic co cosmetics industry, uh, kind of leaps and bounds in terms of where we aim to be. You know, you take any the average spirits commercial. You look at the setting where it is, the kind of the faces you see there. Um, we're just a little bit lagging behind, and it's not just a case of you know, you know, wines being made by made by non-white faces. It's just everything. It's everything from the sales team to the management team, to the recruitment team, to the board of directors, just the entire pyramid structure of the wine industry is so skewed towards one direction and it doesn't really represent the world that we're looking. So really that, 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 that conversation about DNI or diversity and inclusion is about, right, how can we make the industry that we love just kind of represent the world that we live in, right? You know, and, and there are several things which, which we can do, which I'm sure we'll chat about over the next hour. Or so, but hopefully that's kind of that's my take on it. That's my my thing of what diversity and inclusion uh, looks like or should look like. Now, in terms of 
so how do you kind of aim for that as in terms of so i know you, you did a survey a couple of years back and it was what um yeah. the, so the industry was what 85 percent or 86 percent white or something but that is kind yeah. of representative of the uk survey but then of course as you say most people work in cities where it's it's nothing like 80 percent white it's like 40 yeah. something in, in london um well then my, my point today if you don't mind my interrupting right is that is that yes that the general uk looks like that but not the not the population that we're trying to sell wine to fine Right. So, you know, we, we say, okay, what one of the conversations which I have come across several times over the last kind of I'd say five to ten years or so is that the wine industry is struggling for, for, for customer base, right? We're losing it's a dying industry as a customer. We're really struggling to, to win, you know, new business, to, to, to kind of break ground. Uh, when you compare to something like spirits, compared to something like beer, compared to something like soft drinks, right? And then we go, Well, why are we struggling for that? And you think if you if you kind of take a step back and look at look at it objectively. You say, well, what does a wine package, what does a wine label look like? That label probably hasn't changed from inception, I don't know, going back 50 plus years or so ago. So you, you take this liquid, right? It's 12.5% to 15% alcohol. You stick it in a bottle that's either going to be a burgundy bottle, a Bordeaux bottle, or an Alsace fruit. You stick a label on it, and that's pretty much how wine is packaged. And you sell that to the exact same person you've been selling to for the last 50 plus years. And you go, well, no wonder it's a struggling category because the packaging hasn't changed. Um, the, the people who make it haven't changed and the consumer that we are targeting hasn't changed. So um, I, I would argue that there is a real commercial advantage for taking diversity and inclusion very seriously because suddenly it opens untapped markets, markets which we, we didn't even know existed in the past. Suddenly, you know, by making your product more appealing to the average Joe or the average person that doesn't look like because people, I normally say this in my wine classes, right? Though, you know, if you're in a wine class, you're not average. You're far from average. Whether that be a level one or level four, you're not average because the average person doesn't pay 150 quid or 3,000 pounds at the top end of the spectrum to go for a wine, to go and do a wine course. So, you know, it's, you know, packaging that material to a way that appeals to someone who spends five ninety nine, six ninety nine on a bottle of wine. I think there's a real commercial advantage to to, 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 to diversity and inclusion, and not just from a, from a race perspective, but from a gender perspective as well. There's just so many angles to it, right? And I'm sure, again, like I said, we're, we're going to kind of chew the fat over the next hour or so. Cool. Well, so, yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, but I suppose from, yeah, from a wine company point of view, from importers, what, what should people be aiming for? Do you think that quotas or anything like that work in terms of, because as you say, it's, it's so intersectional of, of neurodiversity and gender and colour and, you know, a, yeah. a sexual orientation, even religion to some extent. I mean, it's, it, I mean, not that there's going to be that many Muslims probably working in the wine trade, but, you know, it's still... Yeah, I, I understand yeah, what you um, mean. What, what can people aim for or, or target for, or do you think it should be more organic from that and it needs to be um, like a, a, a mindset change? I think, I think, you know, the reverse to what we we're talking about, Bob, that it becomes tokenism. And that's, that's, that's a kind of an area which I don't want to go into, which is, which is, you know, we list the wine because it's made by a black winemaker, or you list the wine purely because it's made by a female winemaker, or it's made by a Muslim winemaker. And I think that the point that you made about, you know, Muslims might not necessarily work in the wine, world of wine. You don't need to drink wine to taste wine. They're two different conversations, which again, we can come into at, at a later point. But the, the, the point I'm saying is that wine should wash its face. It should be in there on merit. And that's one of the things which the company really set out from the go, Bob, to, to, to establish that. A, I, would, I just did an, an, another interview with, with another company and we're talking about, you know, what is the process I go through or we go through as a company for, for kind of establishing a new estate or for importing a new estate or for building new relationships or 
you know, becoming the agents for a new estate. I mean, the first point, first and foremost, is the quality. Right? As you know, right, the UK wine trade is completely, I don't know why I say completely, there, there no, there's no shortage of good wine. Right? So at, at this point, we have the knowledge, we have the expertise to make great wine. There's no excuse for bad wine. So the point number one becomes the quality must be there. And there have been wines which over the last kind of 24 months or 36 months of my existence, right, where I would like to say that companies uh, or, or wineries are beginning to hear about some of the work that we're doing, especially wineries that are made by non-white faces, right? It might be female winemakers or black winemakers are hearing about some of the amazing work that we're doing with our current kind of stable and they're reaching out and going, hey, you know, I, you know, I, I see you're working with X, Y, and Z. You know, we want to send you some samples. And we taste the samples. And we have to be quite polite and say, you know, it's, it's not up to scratch. Um, maybe the packaging doesn't work or the bottle doesn't, bottle weight doesn't work or the, the liquid itself is just not, not up to where we need it to be. Or, or the next point might then, would then be, you know, if the liquid is up to scratch, then it becomes the commercials, right? It must make sense. Uh, it, it must be able to, as I said, having been in the industry for the last 15 plus year, years, I would like to think that I've got a good feel for what sells where and what price point. And, you know, sometimes people send things in and you look at it, you go, okay, the liquid is okay. I can't really fault it. But, you know, when you price it up and you put in, you know, all the things that you need to consider, the duty, the fat, the storage and so on, the margin that we want to make, the margin that the average supermarket or the average independent uh, wine or independent uh, wine retailer wants to make. And you go, you know, it kind of sits at 20, 25 pounds a bottle. And then I, I then have that conversation with them and going, you know, you're pricing your, with the greatest of respect, I don't know, um, Vice Burgundia, right? 25 pounds a bottle. And it's your kind of entry level wine. and you're sitting, you're going to be going neck and neck against an entry-level Burgundy on the list. See what I mean? So we, we then, the commercials have to make sense, is what I'm trying to say. So point number one is, is, is yeah, A, liquid, B, the commercials, and then the story. Then that's when you, it, it then becomes, you know, this is made by, you know, X, it's made by a female winemaker, made by, because we really want these wines to be on lists for merit. It's not a case of putting it on a list purely because it was made by a, a non-white face because then you're, you're having the exact same problem at the other end of, at the end of the spectrum where you're putting wines in there that don't really and the next point is you know if you put a wine in, in the wrong list or the wrong wine in the right list it kind of solids the water for everyone else you know it's been a difficult enough conversation getting to this stage whereby we're getting some sort of recognition um, we don't want to now have the conversation of, of people saying well the quality wasn't quite up to scratch so I think very, very, very important point worth considering. But yeah, there are so many other things apart from the fact that it was made by, you know, made by a, a non-white face. Do, do you think the conversation is getting to the right? I mean, it, the tone of it's right, then the, con the content of it's right. I mean, it, obviously, it's, you know, it's been a big thing in various different uh, media. And, you know, now companies are taking it seriously with DNI training. But I think again, a lot of that, again, is kind of tokenistic, I think, at times. I'm not, I'm not sure if they mean it to be. But do you reckon that yeah. the conversation's coming to, round to the right? You know, people are being aware of the issues now. Yeah, I think people being aware being aware of the issues is one thing. I I did have this conversation with another company last week, and as you're quite right, uh, Bob, many com many companies are taking it on at the same time, and there is there's always that kind of niggling thought at the back of my mind that are people doing this? What are the reasons why people are doing this? Right? Are they doing it for the right reasons? Are they doing it because it needs doing, or, or, or are they doing or having this DNI conversation, diversity conversation? Because everyone else is having that conversation, and therefore we want to be seen to be having this same conversation. I don't know if that makes sense, right? That, yeah, that always, yeah. always, you know, always, always, 
um, kind of gnaws at the back of my mind. But you know, the important thing, the important thing, Bob, is that it's the conversations being had, whether or not the, the reasons for it being had are, are reasons for good or bad. The important thing from my perspective is that at least let's talk about it, right? And yeah, there is that challenge of 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 some people doing it not for the right reasons. Um, and it always, it always, it always bothers me. But I'm happy that the conversations are being had, and I think they are being had at the right level. You know, we're having CEOs getting involved, a board of directors getting involved, key stakeholders getting involved. Because in the past, it had really been, I don't want to. People are not that. People are the other end of the spectrum, right? At the kind of you know the, the foot soldiers, the work soldiers of the wine industries, industry kind of. Yeah, knocking doors and going, you know, we should have this conversation. But there's only so much noise that can be made at that end. However, if 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 a CEO or or the head of HR or one of the key stakeholders makes a decision or is interested in DNI, then that can kind of filter down, filter its way all the way through the company. And I think that's absolutely where we are at the moment, which is a great a, a great position to be in. So what, what kind of practical steps do you think the industry should be taking and also what can individuals and individual companies be doing? So obviously you work with like Be Inclusive Hospitality and um, yeah. you know, the Drinks Trust, we're doing equal measures, which is yeah. similar but different um, kind of focus. Um, what, yeah, what are the big initiatives that you're seeing that are really good at the moment and what can individuals and individual companies do to take sort of, you know, confident steps in this direction? Now, there are a couple of things, right? The conversation about diversity, I almost kind of challenging. I, I kind of look at it, I look at it with the same glasses as I look at the conversation about sustainability, right? When people talk about why sustainability in wine, more often than not, they look about, you know, carbon footprint and our, our impact on the environment, which is absolutely crucial to sustainability. But that isn't, in my opinion, that is not sustainability 360, right? You must think about commercial sustainability, um, you know, then the, 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 the environmental, there are so many other, other aspects of sustainability. So I would apply the same logic to diversity and inclusion, right? Where you go, right, okay, we, we, want to, we want to have a more diverse company or whatever that might look like, right? I would say, right, first of all, you start with your workforce. So you go, right, let, let, let's, you're not going to know what you don't know. So the first thing you want to do is look at where you are and then you can know what journey you're going to take. So the first thing, easiest way of doing it is a survey or a poll and go, right, how many people work for us, right? Of that number, how many people are female? Of that number, how many people are, are below the age of 50, above the age of 50? You get a good kind of feel for what your company looks like, right? That's internally, right? Then you go, okay, as a wine, in, as a wine company, how many wines do we have on our list? Okay, how many countries do we work with? Of those, how many producers do we work with that are male or female? How many producers that we work with that are not white? And then immediately you start seeing where the gaps are, right? Immediately, you, you don't need, you, you really, I don't want to say you don't need to extend on here, but more, of, more often than not, the kind of gaping holes in your portfolio start kind of showing and go, right, okay, we've been, work, we've been going as a company for the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years. And we, in that time, we have not worked with a single non-white winemaker. And there are companies that are that that stat would be true for. This is not you know me randomly. This is after you know, a couple of years of having this conversation with several companies. With that, which that stat is absolutely true. And sometimes even longer. You've had companies that have been going for over twenty five years, and have are successful, are very you know they're well known, well renowned, and do great things in the wine world. And you go okay for twenty twenty five years of your existence all your wines have been made by white people, either that might be white males or white females. You go, right, that's, that's, that's a bit of an issue because there's, you can't say in that time you've not 
not come across winemakers that are not from that diver, that background. Okay, and people say, you know, well, we can't find non-white winemakers, and I go, well, that's not true because one of the things my company has been going for about three years, and we have got about six or so already and counting, right? And so you have to. One of the things which companies have to do is they have to be deliberate. The the the, the conversation about diversity and inclusion isn't going to not the conversation the practical steps to what you mentioned um isn't going to fix itself it's not one of those things which will naturally evolve you need to be you need to be kind of i don't want to say aggressive you need to be deliberate is the word in fixing that problem so you need to go out and look for it look for look 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 for different winemakers and you know like i said the quality is out there it, there is no there's no excuse in this world of making bad wine although a lot of bad Bad wine exists, but that's a different conversation. <laughs> but the, the, the quality is out there, and it's just the case of companies going out and looking at it. So I think point number one is having an internal review, having an internal review which will tell you where you are. And point number two, once you've found out those holes in your in your in your portfolio, whether that be, that be commercial, whether that be the wines on your list, whether that be your board of directors, whether that be your sales force, wherever it might be, then kind of reach out to 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 to, to I don't know the companies or bodies. That have been set up to help fix that problem. For example, being you know being inclusive hospitality. You know, Lorraine has been going. You know, has done fantastic work in in, in unearthing talent and creating a pool of talent at different levels of of expertise, from entry level, from front of house, all the way up to senior management level. So it's a case of you know, if if you want help, if you want to move the the, the gauge, the dial in the right right direction. There are bodies out there that can help that exist solely for that. So you know that's that's my 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 Is there a like an end goal for it, or is this just going always going to be an ongoing process? Do you think? I think it's always going to be an ongoing process. It's like you know, the fight for equal rights. There there isn't going to be a day when we wake up and go right. We're all equal. Right. Stop. You know, it's not going to happen. It's a, a present continuous thing. Right. And um. Unfortunately, we we live in a world where for every two steps we take forward, every now and then bigotry kind of unearths its ugly head, and 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 then you, it, it it's a sound reminder of how much work is yet to be done. You know, you only need to turn um, I don't know TV, sports, different parts of sectors of our, of of, of, our, of our lives, and you see just how alive and well, and it's just speculating in the background. This kind of bigotry and and ignorance and and he, 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 there's a long way to go about you know I, I would love to say you know in my lifetime we'll definitely crush this on his head and and you know the wine it's not going to happen right it's going to be something that we're going to constantly work on but it, it's something which i feel very passionate about and what one of the one of the positives which which we've gotten to kind of get ahead of myself with with being wine professionals which is i'm sure will come up, come up shortly one of the things which I heard over the last couple of years, people saying, well, people of color are not interested in wine. That's one of the excuses I've heard many times. Like, people of color are not interested in wine. Then, then Majestic did its diversity and inclusion uh, scholarship where they fund, I, I think Majestic take 24 people at a time or whatever it might look like, um, to do WSD level two. And I work closely with Majestic and sometimes, not sometimes, both times they've ran it. I, I've volunteered, given up my time to teach some of the courses. And both times they've run it, so I think it started last year, the courses have been oversubscribed. 
that tells us that the first is there. The first for knowledge is there. There are people there. Again, like I said, you have to be deliberate about your going here. And Jessica have done a brilliant job about singing and shouting about, hey, we're doing this. This is an opportunity. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Grab this. This is a way to get us the wine industry. And both times they've done it has been oversubscribed, which tells us, again, you know, those, those preconceived notions of, oh, people, people of color are not interested in wine. That's false. The next thing which we then did, or one of the things which we worked on being wine professionals was, I didn't want I didn't want there to be there to be some sort of a cap, right, to where students could get to. So what I did was, or what we did was work with with business company, and we say, listen, we've got this kind of stable of 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 of, of students coming through, having brilliant brilliant results at level two. What what else can we do? Because you know you don't want people to finish and then go well. What next, right? So we, we came up with with this uh, the fitness scholarship, which uh, funds I think between eight and twelve level threes over the course of the year. So it's kind of the best, the best of the best that come out of level two, then apply to this level three, and then hopefully we're now talking to a few other people. Watch this space to be able to offer a couple of diploma spots. So kind of my end goal would be able to see sit here in two or three years time and say, hey, this is someone who you know four years ago were. A, a kind of casual wine enthusiast, drunk wine, like wine, didn't know much about wine um, as a person of color, and then did a level two scholarship, did a level three through Vintners, went and did some work experience, because now we're having some companies actually reach out and say, listen, you know, we've got this kind of experience, this kind of exposure going, and if you've got someone who you think will be suitable to this experience, send them our way. And to be able to sit here in four years' time or so and say, this is someone who's done X, Y, and Z, has now got the diploma, and are now working as a buyer for X, or are now working as a, you know, so a senior position in the wine industry. That, in my, is something which I certainly think can be achieved in the next kind of five years or so. Beyond that, I think that the, the fight for equality or diversity and inclusion will continue well beyond that. No, no, you mentioned, I wanted to ask you a little bit about scholarships. In terms of, yeah, in, do we need more of them? Uh, uh, are they are they a means to an end, or you know, how do you see that working? Do you, do you think there needs to be a broader selection of scholarships? How well do you see them working? Because obviously you benefited from them and teach them. So, uh, what, yeah, how do you feel about scholarships, or are they just kind of a stopgap to on the on the journey there? Uh, I think it's a bit of both in terms of a being a stopgap and b um, being absolutely necessary. Because the way I looked at this when we had a conversation. When I had a conversation with um, with with Jans when we set up being wine professionals, one of the, my, my challenges was, you know, we, we want to get more people. We want to get a more diverse wine industry, right? Okay, and I said I sat down to myself and said, well, how would this look? And I said, okay, people who are hiring, what do they look for? Well, often recruiters look for one or two things, especially in the wine world, right? You're looking for a do you have some WSAT qualifications? Do you have some sort of you know product knowledge? That's point number one, and B, what kind of experience do you have? And so. Both of them go hand in hand. And now we, we sat down and did the, 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 the sums, I can't remember who with, for wine education. And for someone um, from a completely, let's say, a zero a standpoint of zero, you have no, no experience and no knowledge in wine, to be able to get to a diploma in wine, right, which you know is no easy fit, feat. Not only is it difficult to do mentally, but it costs between, I think it was about between 10 and 15,000 pounds all in. Yeah, so we're talking about your education fees, the amount of samples you'd be expected to taste outside of wine, your travel. Yeah, all that is about between ten and fifteen grand, and you go right. That's a lot of disposable income, and immediately that kind of alienates a significant portion of of of, of our demographic, right? Of the more the demographic of the UK, either who has fifteen grand to you know, and more often than not, wine is a second career. 
Yeah, most people in wine have done something else and then kind of fell into wine or wine was a kind of... So more often than not, we're talking about, pe- talking about people who've already got a student loan kind of choking them, plus having to invest this amount of money and time over the course of five years or so to get a WSD level three or level four, right? So one of the things which we thought was, how can we aid, alleviate that, that challenge? Yeah, or at least ease that burden. So that's where the scholarships come in. Now, sometimes it does seem like a kind of get out of jail card or, or some companies... Or which might be like, okay, we're doing this scholarship and that's that's our thing for DNI. But I think it's absolutely essential, it's absolutely crucial because what might seem like an easy win for a company is massive in terms of you know someone coming from a not so affluent background. You know, imagine having to do that, you know, do the education without that, you know, nagging feeling in the background of I've got to come up with, with this. I, I know that firsthand, right? For example, the scholarship you're mentioning. Earlier on, it just kind of allows the students to go and you know express themselves educationally, without having to worry about that that extra layer of of goodness. Can I afford this financially? So that's point number one. And then point number two was about the 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 um, the work experience. And we've been working very closely. We've had some absolutely brilliant offers come through of uh, offering students paid internship, uh, paid uh, uh, harvests, uh, students traveling out to Bordeaux to go do a harvest. You know, and this are Shackles, Bob. I'm not talking about, you know, with the greatest respect, I'm not talking about the average, you know, entry level five quid Bordeaux. I'm talking about, you know, crew class A's reaching out and saying, you know, by the, by the, by autumn, we've got two spots available for, you know, come in, you, you know, opportunities which, you know, five years or so, when I was definitely going through my WST journey, just I wouldn't have even known where to reach out for that kind of opportunity. So, you know, when you put both of them together, the experience and the qualifications, Suddenly, you've got that that you know that holy grail of now we can reach out to an HR agency. And I think last week or the week before, we had um, a fine wine company reach out to us and say, you know, they were recruiting for a position. If we had someone, you know, we, we, who we wanted to put forward, and I think that again, that's another real huge step because again, a few years ago, these conversations would not have been had in the past. Wine really recruited from the same pool, and no one that had got the same kind of faces. It was, you know, if you were looking for a wine job, there are two or three places you look. You looked in drinks business, you probably looked in decanter, maybe Harpas, and I don't know, wine GB, wine jobs GB. Now, if you don't know that these three or four places exist, you've got zero chance of getting into the industry. And now we're, we're seeing, you know, companies reach out to people like, like, like being, inclu- being inclusive hospitality, like being wine professionals and saying, okay, it's not a case of, Send us someone, and we'll definitely hire them. It's saying, okay, we've got twenty CVs in front of in front of us. We would like two percent, three percent, five percent, whatever it might be, to be from non-traditional kind of wine background, right? And I think that's a really, really important step. So to answer your question, the scholarships are important, but they are one one cog in in an, in an ever moving wheel. So it, it's it's very important, but there are other things which kind of go hand in hand with that whole scholarship. Um, um, offering now this this was an exam question coming through as p4 or p5 i presume it's p5 but is, is elitism an inherent problem in the world of wine um, and i'm guessing you're going to say yes but um <laughs> what uh, what do you think well absolutely of course i mean it's not it's one of those which you can wake me up in the middle of the night and ask me that question i go yes absolutely <laughs> because firstly right as I, as I just mentioned bob define what elitism right you're talking about people who've got come from a certain place look a certain way sound a certain way know a certain set of people, have a certain kind of disposable income. And once you start ticking those boxes, you start realizing just how 
alienating the world of wine can be. Because it really, it, it almost takes a, a, a ruler, right, to, to society and draws a line through society and says, if you exist above this line, fine, you can get into our club. And if you fall below this line, you don't get into our club. And sometimes it's very deliberate and sometimes it's, it, it's, it's indeliberate. Again, I mentioned the education part of it. Education, wine education is not cheap. So once you've said, you know, you need 10 grand to be able to get a diploma, you know, from standing start, right? And that's assuming you pass everything first time. And that's assuming, you know, everything goes smoothly. You know, you, you then go to the average person and go, well, who has 10,000 pounds to spend over the next five years um, to get into an industry which you may or may not be successful in? And suddenly that kind of, you know, that really chops up. So my answer to that is yes, yes, it is. No, it is seen as, a, as an old boys club, quite literally. Um, but I think the dial is shifting. You know, we, it's a really exciting time. It's a really eye-opening time. And I'm, I'm really, really thrilled that to have seen this movement kind of kick off in the last couple of years, because I definitely remember kind of in my early teens, early teens my late teens in the wine industry, where I'd walk into a tasting and I just feel this air of discomfort. Like I just didn't feel like I belonged there. I just didn't feel comfortable in it. And I'd go and I remember I'd leave the office. I'd go, oh, I'm going to X, Y, and Z tasting. And I'd come back after half an hour and go, oh, you're back already. And yeah, yeah, it is like what I wanted to. It was really uncomfortable to talk about like, you know, why did you, you know, it's the kind of thing which the office had said, you know, you're going to spend the rest of the day there. And I'd go there for half an hour, an hour, and I'll be back. And it's like, mm, why did you come back? So oh, I tasted what I wanted to taste. But really, these are the correct answer, not the, correct, the true answer to it is, it just felt uncomfortable. You know, you walk in, it's a bit, uh, you just, no one's, it's that kind of unspoken thing in the room. Like no one says anything, no one, but you just feel a little bit uncomfortable. And for a very long time, I convinced myself that it was all in my head. That, you know, it's me, it's me. I'm, it's a victim thing, right? And then I spoke to other people of color in the trade and they've got the exact same experience. And I go, right, okay, it's definitely not me then. If we've never met before, We've never seen each other before. And this is the first time we're meeting, having a DNI conversation. I'm mentioning this thing that used to bug me. And suddenly you also have had that same experience. And she's also had that same experience. And he also have had that same experience. And we've never talk, spoken about this before. Then it's not us. It's, there's definitely uh, an inherent kind of, yeah, there's a, there's a boundary, a barrier, a barrier in the room, which I think, as I mentioned earlier, the word, Bob, is we have to be deliberate, deliberate about breaking it down. It might be a case of someone walking to a tasting and just introducing yourself, right? It's just like, welcome, you know, hey, where are you from? Just that initial chat, you, 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 you know what it's like, you know, if, if, if one of the, one of the, 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 the kind of scenarios which I create, right? I go, okay, listen, I was born in Cameroon, in West Africa. I was born 100 meters, maybe 250, 300 meters from the Atlantic. It's a big fishing community, yeah? where you wake up in the morning, you run around, jump in the ocean, fish. That's the kind of thing we do. Perfect. And, and you know, imagine as a 14, 15-year-old man born in Europe and you go to that part of the world, emigrate to that part of the world, which is what age I was when I moved over here. And it was like, okay, uh, you need to learn how to fish now. What kind of help would you need? A significant amount, right? You need to know, A, speak the language. Be you know be able to adapt to the change of climate. So many other things going on, uh, and never mind you know learning a complete new skill in a complete new environment. So you would need the the locals, the people, to be as welcoming as possible to make it easy for you to integrate into that community, right? And it's exactly the same thing for the wine industry. We have to think of you know people of of, of from a different uh, different uh, ethnic background or whatever that might be, as people 
sometimes wine isn't our first drink of choice. Sometimes it's spirits, it's beers, it's other things. So coming into the world of wine is a little bit, it's alienating to start with. And when you walk in and then you're met with snobbish behavior, you're met with, it's, it's already difficult to start with. So let's, let's not make it harder. Yeah, the other drinks categories are, if you go to a beer, co- uh, go to any beer tasting, it's just a, t- it's a different world of people waving it's at a you. Different yeah, vibe. Completely, yeah, totally, exactly. yeah. Totally. Yeah, 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 time. So, well, listen, I, I'm actually, I'm conscious of, we've been talking for a while and I want to talk, talk to you about your business as well. I don't just want to talk about diversity. But, um, but as one sort of final question, which I think probably doesn't get asked enough, is what, what are the biggest mistakes that you see people making in the name of DNI? Um, either from a personal level or from a business level or just from an industry. Ooh, I've, got, I've got one that's one that's an utter, complete and utter. Mm, Can you name really, his name as well? <laughs> no, 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 I couldn't possibly. I, I need them just as much as I hate them. But that's not, that's not mentioning it, right? So it's people who, it's companies or people or individuals, whoever it might be, that want to have a diverse uh, DNI conversation or, or DNI initiative with no input from people from the kind of marginalized communities that they're trying to represent. That's a big one for me. So for example, right? It's having a company say, hey, we want to have a diversity and inclusion policy. And often the statement is made by a white middle-aged guy who's running the DNI arm of the company. And you go, hmm. Like, you know, the, 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 it just doesn't make, A, it doesn't make any sense. And B, there are certain experiences that are unique to people who have, to, to the marginalized community, whatever it might be. And so sometimes I've got a few, a few mentees who are coming through the, the, the education pro- program at BMI Professionals and they reach out with, with different challenges. It might just be the terminology they don't understand, might, might not understand the terminology, might not, you know, might feel some subconscious bias at work and so on. And it's really difficult to have that kind of conversation with someone who hasn't been in that space before. So one of my, my kind of my no-nos is, is companies that are trying to do, have some sort of DNI. and It's like, by all means, have the initiative, right? But you've got to talk, you've got to, you know, you've got, it's like me trying to, you know, me trying to talk about women in wine. What do I know about women in wine? Hey, I've never been one. You know, so, you know, I, the, the experiences which are unique to women in wine that, as marginalized as I might feel, or whatever that might be, right? I have no no understanding whatsoever on what it means to be a woman in wine. So me then going to a company, right, and having a conversation about, hey, you know, I'm here to talk about, you know, how we can get more women into the wine industry. Immediately, eyes roll over. It's like, it, yeah, get, get on me, right? That's one of my, that's one of my kind of, so the no-nos is please, you know, there are enough, there are enough people out there that we can talk, talk to and chat to about how to fix the problem rather than being that kind of white crusader, white savior complex. No, please don't. Yeah. Sorry, Bob. No, 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 you're right. You, you go for it, man. You, it's your soapbox. You go for it. You, the people have asked you to speak about it. <laughs> so yeah. Exactly. So let's have that conversation. <laughs> well, listen, um, so yeah, let's, yeah. let's talk about um, your business. So there, there was quite an interesting question a few years back of um, there's talk of consolidation in the wine industry, but where is the industry fragmenting and why? Um, so obviously COVID has been a big part of that. I suppose, you know, you setting up on your own could be kind of considered fragmentation in this sort of yeah, way. Yeah, peeling off and doing my own thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah. So do you want to talk us through about your journey? So I mean, you know, how it's worked for you, uh, how it started um, and you, what your, you know, what your business model and USP and all the rest is. 
Yeah, yeah. No, thanks, Bob. It's this a, is your elevator pitch. Go for yeah, it. Yeah, this is it. My, my, sell, sell me this pen, that, that team. Um, yeah, so listen, um, it's something I'd always wanted to do, right? You know, set up on my own. I'd like to think I'm, I'm a fairly entrepreneurial. Um, but I'd always kind of talk myself out of it, as, as every, every, you know, everyone does. Right? Whatever it might be, new skill, you want to learn a new skill, you always talk yourself out of it. Because you know you're, going, you're afraid, right? It's that fear of the unknown, fear of things that you've not done before. So, um. Yeah, I always said I didn't have enough time, or I didn't have enough money, or I didn't have enough experience. One of the, one of the, the things which I was absolutely convinced I had to do, which you, you might also resonate with this, um, with, with your own pod, podcast and that is right. You know, I, I was convinced I had to go study and get an MW before I, I, before I, I start because you know, no one will take me seriously. I'm a black guy in wine unless you know, I had the credentials and so on to back it up. No one would ever take me seriously. That's what I was absolutely convinced of this, right? So, off I went, I did my studies, blah, 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 blah. Um, then COVID hit, right? And it's like, suddenly I have all this time on my hands. And at that point I was kind of, you know, still doing stage one of the MW, but the second go of doing stage one. And so I, I've had a fair amount of air miles under my belt. You know, I traveled the world a few times, traveled the wine world, certainly met producers, met people, created some, some long lasting friendships, you know, people I still chat to to this day. And, and, you know, when COVID hit, I just thought, you know, well, now's as good a time as any. You know, when many people were, were jumping ship and going, you know, let's consolidate and let's 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 make sure. I thought, you know, let's take a big gamble. Let's roll the dice on ourselves and see how see how that pans out. Which you know could have gone the other way, but thank God didn't. Um, so essentially, I started off fairly sensibly, like a wine broker. Right, that's really how I describe myself. But not a broker in the traditional sense, because when you think broker, you think JMB, you think you know, um, you know, top end, you know, we're brokering Chateau, I don't know, Lafitte, Petrus. No, 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 no. My friend, I was a broker at the other end of the spectrum, right? At the you know, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc for three New Zealand dollars per liter, right? I was down that end of the spectrum, so bulk wine, right? And working with some supermarkets, some some some, some deep discount discounters, um, and really just creating, you know, working with with companies that had wine in bulk putting them in a shiner label and working on a label. I had a, I'm still working with an excellent label designer and going, hey, you know, essentially what, what, what I do is, is approach these supermarkets or the buyers and say, what are you looking for? And they say, I'm looking for an Aussie Shiraz for $6.99. Fab. You know, fly over there, you know, speak to a few people I know, create the brand, create the blend, come over and go, hey, here are four options, here are four labels. All of them will retail at $6.99, giving you the margin you want, and we'll also make the margin number one. Perfect. So started doing that, did that for about 12 months, and that was fairly successful. Um, but there was only so much six ninety nine Shiraz you can you can sell before you <laughs> I start glazing over, right? You know, as amazing as it is com- commercially, it's not the reason why you and I got into wine, right? We didn't get into wine for that, for that you know. It's still we still it's still a significant part of our business. It's just you ache for tasting the weird and the wonderful, the Greek amphora fermented wild skin contact, you know. The passion is for that stuff. So um, then lockdown hit in March. Was it March 20? Yes, 2021 lockdown. And we traded for a little bit. And then by about kind of April, May, I watched the trend of the, for the last three months or so and seen that on trade was shot. It meant people weren't going to restaurants. Um, supermarket stuff was going up. And the next, my next point was, well, people are, st- are seeing it, either going to supermarkets and buying wine or sitting at home and ordering wine online. So we, I, I embarked on the second part of the project, which was, okay, let's, um, let's create an, an e-commerce platform. Right? Let's ship wine in essentially and sell it, sell it to uh, wholesalers, independents, and online, whatever that might look like. So that was the next kind of evolution. 
in the next three to six months was that. And it wasn't without its challenging challenges because, again, bear in mind, this is a just post-Brexit um, uh, UK plus the ad- added dimension of COVID. So that was, you know, talk about, you know, juggling, juggling plates. This is juggling, you know, hot lava. Um, so that was, that was, that was, that was tough. Um, but one of the ways I looked at it, right, was if you, if you as a wine company made it through 2020 and 2021 without falling apart, you can survive anything. Yeah. If you could, if you made it through those two, you, you could, you could do anything. So we, we did that. That was great. Um, uh, are still doing that. And really that's how the company has evolved. You know, it's it not the way I set up was to do ex- exclusively do brokering. And I said, you know, if I were to do X amount at X margin, that'd be great. By the first year, we doubled our, our, our forecast. And this is year, this is the full second financial year. We also look, we're looking again to double last year. So, um, yeah, year on year growth, which is great. Um, fine, wouldn't touch it. Long may that continue. So, where do you source your wines from? As it was, I, th- I think it was in the bio yeah. article that you said that you you normally go in source wines that people want rather than buy wines and then try and flog them and then try and flog them yeah, yeah. <laughs> so really it's a it's a conversation of, it's a it's, it's a it's a mix of everything so when when i started shipping for wholesale and retail i it's about knowing your market and knowing what you're good at i immediately at the start i'm never gonna be able to compete for bordeaux and burgundy right i'm a young black man in my you know, at that point in my, my early 30s it's like you know if you want to drink bordeaux and burgundy you know where to go to buy bordeaux and burgundy what I could do is, is carve a little niche market for ourselves with the, with the kind of eccentric and eclectic, the off the beaten track stuff, right? So we started with Austria, which is a hot, you know, hotbed at the moment, right? People can't get enough Bruna, can't get enough Zweigog and stuff like that. So we started with Austria, then we kind of moved to Greece, Hungary, Cyprus, kind of that eastern, that on, on, untapped Mediterranean bed and traveling further east. Um, a couple of South African things came on board. Uh, Halfway through our evolution, or halfway through, halfway through the first year, I was introduced to a few uh, U.S. estates. So it's really, and I have this question a lot. People ask, "What do you specialize in?" We specialize in good wine at good prices. Right? There isn't one country which I'm going to go. Oh, this is you must drink our wine because we're really good at this. You know, we've got great stuff from all over the world. Um, we've got Maison Chasse Frame, which are really as as classic as you can get in Alsace. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we've got Lubanzi from South Africa, which was created in 2017. And they've just, they've just launched the wines in cans last year. So if you want innovation, we can do innovation. If you want traditional classic, we've got some super traditional classic wines. So it's just a bit of everything. Um, as I mentioned, the quality and the price being really important because, you know, as affluent as the UK, not, we're not as affluent as we once thought with inflation and all that. Point being, um, People are not going to overpay for whatever it might be. So that's that's where we are at the moment. Are you, how much are you seeing demand for wine in cans and other packaging? Because I went to the uh, can wine tasting at the Institute, when was it? I don't know, yeah. Three months ago or something. And it was, yeah, I was blown away, ago. but like some of them were absolutely stunning wines that they got in cans now. And I like cans, they look better, they're lighter. They're, I'm a massive fan. But, um, yeah, there's so much, yeah, there's so much going for them than isn't. Yeah. Are, you, getting, are, you, are, you, are you finding them an easy sell? No, is a short answer. <laughs> I wish I could, I wish yeah, I could you can sell anything there. Come on, <laughs> yeah. Well, it depends. It depends because it depends who you're selling it to. Through through ourselves, it's slower. But then we're a smaller player. But we also sell the cans to other distributors, and through those distributors, we're shipping a significant amount, so under a different label and so on. So you know, slow through us, but that's not 
that's not because it's a whining can. It's because we are a relatively small player in this this this, this pool, uh, this particular pool. So um, I think once once people have tasted it, they're absolutely blown away by it. There's just so much going for it, right? You know, the packaging, lightweight. It's 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 with more recycling. There's more recycling recycle facilities for cans than there are for bottles. Um, what's the other thing? Uh, you don't need this corkscrew. How many times have we have you gone to a party, taken a bottle of wine, and then you know? Hey, we don't have a corkscrew. You, you know, it's lightweight. You can stick in your pack lunch or stick it in your little picnic basket. You know, go to the park you know, whenever the weather weather permits. So, just so many things. Going for it. I think it's it's more a psychological block. I think people say, "Oh, why didn't cans?" And then we crack a can open and they go, "Oh, actually, that's not bad, or that's really good." And you go, "Well, the quality is, you know, it's it's just, it's the same wine, just put in a different packaging." So, I think um, it's definitely a space to watch. Um, it's not been as quickly. Or, or as quick an uptake as we thought it would be, but you know that's that's the nature of everything. Actually, like I said, right when I when we started this conversation, Bob, I said wine has been packed packaged in the same material for the last fifty plus years and looked exactly the same. So um, it's going to take a lot of work to break that particular mold, and uh, it's work we're committed to doing because there's so much, so much, so many advantages to to working in that format um, than bottled. So now this. Uh, I wanted to ask you about because uh, you, you you started a company in probably the most challenging <laughs> time that's ever happened. Like, yeah. so uh, but uh, out of the, out of COVID, Brexit, and international supply chain issues, which are the biggest you know contenders? Which have been the hardest to work around? Um, there's quite a few people. Apparently, people who got their act together and was organised about with Brexit. Yes, it is more expensive and it was more time consuming. Yeah. But people, you know, it is one that you can navigate. Or have, uh, what, which have you found the toughest to to deal with? I think whether it's positive or negative or however you want to put it, it's like choosing, you know, which stick would you like to get hit in the head with <laughs> out, of, out of a table of sticks, right? It's like, well, yeah. Which is the worst stick then? Yeah, which is the worst stick. Yeah, exactly. Right. So um, I think for different reasons, there were different sets of challenges. I think Brexit for the unknown, right? For the fact that, goodness gracious, we've never lived in that world before. So nobody knew... Nobody knew what was needed or what was necessary, right? Let me give you an example from a supply chain point of view, right? In the past, in a pre-Brexit world, I, I distinctly remember working for someone else, right? And you'd place an order from Alsace, which Alsace by road is about nine hours from central London. It, it's doable. You know, you need a very enthusiastic driver and you can do it in half a day, right? <laughs> and I remember we'd place an order on a Monday, right? And if it wasn't landed in our EHD account by Thursday of, of the same week, There'd be phone calls and emails going through saying, what's, what's going on? This has been four days. It's only coming from France, right? Now, post-Brexit, that time, it, at the worst, at its absolute, I want to say peak or trough, depending on how you want to look at it, at, at, at its very worst, it was taking about five weeks to ship from France. Now, it, you've gone from five days to five weeks lead time, and the distance hasn't changed, right? And that was because, you know, there were a few companies in the past, it, it would have been... a a logistics company going to a winery and say, hey, I'm from, I don't know, Bob and & Co. And here's the purchase order. I'm here to pick this wine up. Here we go. Sign here. Boom. Load it in a truck. It goes to a centralized warehouse. Gets centralized and off it goes. And that took a day, maybe two days tops. Now, what then happened was, you know, with this VI1 forms and everything else that we had to do for post-Brexit, um, uh, was it called X1 forms, export forms? Essentially, um, wine coming from Europe would you have to raise a document that took take, uh, took it from the where from the winery to the port of Calais, France. You know, somewhere yeah, the end, the last port. Right? 
then you'd have to raise a second piece of document that, that took it from Calais to Dover, right? Then you need to raise a third piece of document that took it from Dover to, to determine uh, whatever, whatever your warehouse. These are two or three pieces of, of documents which did not exist a week or so before pre-Brexit. Now, do you think those, each and every one of those documents was free? That's the next point, right? So every time that you did that, that really, there was an extra, extra cost. And not every company was set up to do these extra sets of admin. But what that then means, so imagine if you had 100 companies which were, which were shipping, and after Brexit, only about 20, 25% of them had the necessary paperwork or government, I don't know, approval, accreditations to be able to do these extra steps, right? Now, everyone now has to use that 25% of logistic company, right? So they've got, you know, they've, they've got more work to do with, with, uh, with and, and they have to do more stuff. Then adding that extra dimension of COVID, just that little sushan of spice on the top, which really dragged down companies, you know, every company kind of scaled back to a skeleton crew. So you're looking at less amount of companies doing more work, doing, doing most, more work that needs to be done, uh, takes a long amount of time, and we're now working with 20, 20% of our staff. That's what that world looked like. Um, that was for traditional regions. I've got a good example for you. Shipping wine from Cyprus, because we, we thought it would be cool, right? We, we'll go off the big, we'll do weird stuff. Let's go ship Cyprus. Yeah, that's amazing. The wines are absolutely stunning. Really, really great wines. So we, we decided to ship. We pulled the trigger. Fab, the wine left Cyprus, I think, end of March. and didn't get land in our warehouse till like July, early July. About three months. Fuck me. Really? What? Exactly. What happened? I could have gone in there and put it in my backpack and ran it from Cyprus to... And it's just the step we had to go through. So first of all, we were sitting in the port of Limassol. Um, it sat there for about, you know, for about four weeks because there wasn't just, there just wasn't enough wine coming out of Cyprus to justify because we were only shipping one pack, one mixed pallet. And obviously a lorry isn't going to drive to Cyprus for one mixed pallet, right? So they had to wait for there to be enough accumulation of other orders to go on a lorry. But now when we had, when we had the orders, it was like, okay, um, but hang on, how do we actually ship wine from Cyprus to UK now that there's Brexit? And there was literally one company of all of Cyprus that could do it. We, talk, we spoke to about 12 different companies, right? And there was only one that had the right HMRC accreditation to be able to do it. And of course, we had to wait for that one company to have the one truck that they send down there every couple of weeks or so. Then it left from Cyprus, and I think it went to mainland Greece and then had to drive from Greece through Europe and make its way to, yeah. So it was, um, it was fun. Um, but yeah, that's, that's at the top end of the spectrum. So to kind of answer your question, that it's really difficult to choose which of them were, were, they were, they were tough, Brexit, um, COVID, um, they were tough for different reasons. Um, they had different, different set of challenges to them. But again, I mean, as I mentioned, right. Um, it was just about evolve or die. And I knew that before we started. You know, not before Brexit hit, um, COVID hit. Brexit, yeah, I knew it was going to be uncertain. Um, but I was also very fortunate or very blessed in that when I started, um, I'd originally never set out to hold stock. So I don't know if you remember, there was a real bottlenecking of people not being able to get wine in, um, had orders pending, pending. We were not in that situation. So for the first few months of existence, or the first six, 12 months or so, we were just brokering. So whatever we made, there was an order for it. We got the purchase order. We went and made it. We bottled it. Fab. And then it's like, bang, okay, shipped that. And it went to where it needed to go. It wasn't a case of bringing those wines and sitting on them. And we kind of played the market and waited for things to, or waited to have a better understanding of what the market looked like before we started shipping ourselves. So I'd like to think we were blessed and 
also wise and not just you know jumping in head first and, and hoping for the best. So how good was the government um, commentary on it or explanation of what was happening? So no, Daniel Lambert's been very critical of um, not being given the information. Was the information there if you went looking for it or was it something you just yeah. had to figure out as you went through? At the start, there wasn't because I don't think that I'm not going to be critical about the government because you don't know what you don't know, right? Yeah. We, 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 we decided to vote for Brexit for whatever reason. That's a different conversation. <laughs> um, but we've never lived in that world, at least not in our lifetime, in a world as being part of the EU, right? We were so woven into the fabric of the EU, right? And the way we dealt, dealt with our business that when we came out of it, it's like, yeah, we've come out of, of the European Union or boo, we've come out of the European Union, whichever side of that fence you fall on. Then it's like, now what, right? How, how do we do this? How do we move wine or, or anything from this place to there? Um, what, what, what's going to happen to things are labeling terms, right? You know, for example, one of the things which they were trying to do is have um, uh, traceability forms on all wines, right? What that meant for top crew or top class growth was that but, uh, cases of Lafitte were going to have to be cracked open, uh, samples drawn out of them, and an, a lab analysis done on them. And people were like, that makes absolutely zero sense. Because as you know, right, you crack that case open, it's lost its value. It's like driving a car, a brand new car of a dealership. The moment you put the key in and start the ignition and drive it off the lot, it, it's lost 20% of its value, you know, just by opening that case. So there were so many things that, you know, unknown unknowns, like I call them. So it's easy to sit here and say that we should have had more information. We should have done this. We should have done that. Well, we didn't know what we didn't know. The government didn't know what it didn't know. So I think that information came readily available as quickly as it could be available. Now, those companies, from our perspective, we were in shipping at that kind of bottleneck period, right? So we could afford to sit back and say, hey, we'll wait and see how this evolves or we'll wait and see how this plays out, then make a decision. But I, I can appreciate from a company's perspective, a company that um, needed to have wine, you know, that tap could not shop for whatever reason. I can appreciate them being even more frustrated than we were going well we don't know what we're doing we don't know what we have to do to progress so i understand it but i think you know case of unknown unknowns we didn't know what we didn't know and there's a, an old exam question that's kind of kind of made for you i think so um can small independent wine importers compete with large importers on price and how else can they compete effectively so how do you see so, because you're you're aiming after some of the you know some of you know for, for you know for multiple or some of the larger independents then you're you know you're competing yeah. with some of the big boys right but i mean how yeah. do you how do you uh how do you fight that fight the short the short answer is you don't you can't go pound for pound for them on the same product it just can't happen um they have more economy of scale uh, they might have more buying power they have just so much going for them right okay let me give you a, 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 a as you know for you know let's since we have our education hats on examples <laughs> we're gonna even die by examples right Love examples uh, exactly Exactly. So if, if I was shipping, I'll give you some numbers, right? If I was shipping one pallet of wine, say from Bordeaux, I don't know, yeah, Bordeaux, uh, to London, uh, to LCD Tilbury, or, yeah, it's in the UK. It'll cost about, I think it costs about 200 quid there, thereabouts per pallet, you know, for some extra bits for export form. Let's call it 250 quid to be safe, right? That's one pallet. By the time you get to doing, um, it's, it's 10 pallets per, per 20 foot container. Let's say you're doing, I don't know, uh, yeah, 10 pallets, 10 to 20 pallets. Suddenly that drops down to something like uh, 105 pounds per pallet. Yeah, so the economy of basically the, the almost more than half how much it's going to cost the, per pallet. And of course, when you do it per bottle, there's a significant saving. It's something like you're dropping from like one pound something per bottle for shipping 
uh, two cents per bottle for shipping. So that makes it, and as you know, that point of view, right? At that moment, at that point, right? That's your raw on the bun cost. And so everything kind of expansiates on top of that. So 20% of one of one pound and 20% of five pounds, it's a, it's a huge jump. That makes sense. So when you're looking at stuff like that, uh, so you add on your duty, you add on your VAT, you add on, add on your margin. And suddenly, just because they made that 20, 30, 40, 50% saving at the shipping point of view, they can make so they can make so many more, so much more saving exponentially, such that you know, if you look at the same product shipped by Mr. Me, MJ Wine Sellers, who ships one pallet versus a multiple retailer who does 10 pallets, 20 pallets, whatever it might be, um, with the same liquid, I'm coming out at about 15.99 and they're coming out at about 10.99 or sometimes 9.99 to hit that sort of 10 pound price point. So the answer is if you're looking at the same liquid pound for pound, it's impossible to, to, to compete with them purely from that economy of, economy of scale perspective. But then you have to be smarter about how you do it. For example, there are a few things which we do. So we might have, we've got some wines in the UK market, which are um, some, some, some multiple retailers will allow it, some don't read the contract. My God, that's a, I couldn't <laughs> yeah, like, read, read the contract because it could really hurt you if you don't. Um, so some allow it whereby they go, yeah, you, you can have the same liquid as us, um, uh, just not in the same packaging. We go, great. Yeah, so we create a completely different pack- packaging for that, that, that liquid where we go. Um, and different packaging is not that hard to do, right? You go, okay, instead of doing, they, they can have the red screw caps, we'll have the black screw caps. They'll have the, you know, the bottle is the same. So it's Alsace flute or Burgundy flute or Bordeaux flute or Bordeaux bottle, whatever. But they'll have the red foil, we'll have the black foil. Um, we'll have a different label. That's fine, they'll have, this, this is their label. And often, you know, with, with the, 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 the wineries we work with, we go to them, okay, let's have this conversation, right? We go to them and we go, um, we, we need a, we need a, a 40 pallet order, no, no, 20, 30 pallet order for a, a large retailer in the UK. Amazing, that's a great order. And I go, oh, by the way, I need you to do me a massive favor. I need you to label, when you've done that order run, I'm going to send you a label and a packaging spec. Please, can you label 600 bottles for a pallet for us? And they go, yeah, sure, why not? Because, you know, you've just ordered, you know, several thousand bottles, right? You know, several thousand, you know, having them to do one pallet for the other. It's an inconvenience. It's a conversation which you couldn't have if you didn't have that order order to go. So that's what we kind of benefit from is that, you know, we, we kind of piggyback off them. And that's the way we can actually compete with them. Right? We piggyback off their orders, which you go, right, this is an order going to X. It's for X amount. They go, amazing. That's a great order. Oh, by the way, can you do something? I need you to just do 600 bottles for us in this kind of spec. It's the same bottle. I just need a different foil, and this is the the, the books. And sometimes we might even leave the back label the same, as long as it doesn't have the supermarket's own stuff on it. So we might do the same back label, the different front label. Now suddenly you've got this this other wine in quotes, right? Which you can then sell to the entree, you can then sell to multiples, you can then sell direct to consumer. As, as perhaps the supermarket goes up and goes in at ten ninety nine, you sell that at twelve ninety nine, thirteen ninety nine, and there's no competition you know there's no face because we now live in a divino world right where you know someone buys wine the first thing which they do is they scan it and they go right uh it's in waitrose or some tesco's in aldi for x amount i'm not buying it in you for from from you for y amount so i think if you if you if, if you wanted to go pound for pound with them the answer is no you're never going to compete not if you wanted to make make any any sort of margin whatsoever um i would say though i would add the other point though that there are companies that try and do it and just chop their margins down really, really aggressively to do so. Because, you know, everyone has their own way of doing it because uh, the average multiple, the average multiple retailer works anywhere from 20 to 40% margin. 
So there's a fat juice amount of juice in there that if you wanted to cut down your margins aggressively enough to match them on price, you could. But then I would argue that why would you do that? Because most people are going to go there anyway. They're more known, they're more recognized than, than you are. So why would you even want to do that? Um, there's that conversation. But my, 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 what kind of margins do you aim for? Can you say? That's, that's, a, uh, that's a how long is a piece of string conversation. It's, there's always that elegant dance between volume and margin, right? Which it could be anything from 15 to 5, depending on what we're doing. You know, if someone's working with, and that's for, that's for kind of wholesale stuff, right? Um, yeah, it's, it's always what kind of margin are we aiming for? How much wine do you want to buy? Because if, you, if you're buying six bottles and someone is coming over and buying 6,000 bottles, we're having two different conversations. And when we're not, sometimes we don't, we don't even look at the percentage margin. Sometimes even the percentage margin can be, okay, I was doing this, no, it's a good one for you. I was doing, this, uh, doing some numbers last week uh, for a tender, which we're looking at at the moment, for a, a retailer that shall forever remain nameless right, onto, right up until we win the tender, hopefully. Um, and moving the percentage margin by 0.1%, so moving from like 10% margin to... 9.9 made a few thousand more or less depending on what direction you move so that gives you an idea of how important those tiny fractions can be um so yeah it's it's never a case of oh we have a st- we must make five percent we must make two percent or we must make ten percent no that's not the case it's always about you know the volume or, or and sometimes we've done we've done products or, or we've created brands where we've made no money Net, net. I mean, obviously, you're gonna. It's gonna have to wash its face, but it's been done as a favor for someone, right? Where it goes, a, a supermarket might go. We really need a Barossa Shiraz, or we really need a South Australian Shiraz for six ninety nine, and we go. Once you've done all the numbers, you go. Really, to be honest, we're making cents on the bottle here, like tiny amounts. But the idea being that the next time they have a tender for a Punawara Cabernet Sauvignon. They're probably going to call us, and that's where we'll, we'll kind of recoup some of that. But you know, it's just—it's all about, as you know, right? But it's all about relationships and playing chess, and not checkers. Thinking two years, six months, you know, five years in, in advance. Where are we going to be? Where is this product going to be? What can we do with this product? Rather than being a stickler for, we absolutely have to make two percent, or we absolutely have. To. Uh, well, listen, I'm quite conscious of time, but um, so I don't want to. Oh, don't, don't, don't that's why I'm you're having fun, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> well, fair enough. <laughs> well, listen, there's, um, there's a question I would like to, um, like to always end on, uh, which is, what are the major causes for optimism in the wine world today? But I've, I've got a feeling you've got something to say. You seem like an optimistic dude every time I meet you. So, like, <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, one of the big ones, right, is the fact that we are, we're seeing the back end of COVID. Oh, goodness gracious. I mean, it's, it's been pain. Wine really is a social thing. The industry is a social beast, right? You know, none of us got into this industry to become, you know, this time next year, we're going to make two billion. No, not really. Maybe, I don't know. Um, but really, we got into to eat some amazing food, drink some amazing wines, travel. I, mean, I always say this to people who are getting in the industry. I'm like, if you want to make money, go and do banking. You know, go work in the city. Go and be a stockbroker. You'll make lots of money. But if you want to eat amazing food, drink amazing wine, have some, travel to some places and have some experiences which, you know, your banker friends will only dream of, then definitely go work in the world of wine. But, you know, what, what COVID did to us was it took it, that, that last joy we had out of the wine world. It kind, of, it kind of took that out of us. You know, there was no traveling, you know. So the causes of optimism, the fact that I'm going to get on a, on a flight again this year, Bob, I'm so looking forward to it. You know, we, we've got California lined up, Greece, Cyprus, Spain in May. So whew, I can't wait. You know, 
the fact that we can travel this, this very afternoon, we had a winemaker from South Africa um, just landed. So, you know, we're going to be, you know, the fact that you can actually go out and meet people and say, I've got a winemaker in town. We've got a winemaker dinner on Wednesday. My God, I haven't done one of those in what, two years plus. Mm. So there's that, you know, the, the world is opening up again. Um, but I would say be cautiously optimistic. As you know, um, cost of living is going up. Inflation is on the rise. Everything is on the other direction as well. So on one hand, it's like, yay, we can travel. On the other hand, it's like, it's going to cost you 50% more. So there's <laughs> <laughs> a competition to be had at both ends. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, listen, I think we've, we've kind of um, gone well over our hour. But um, but yeah, so listen, thank, I've just got time to thank you for, for your time, really. It was... Uh, it was amazing to um, send me all the links and I'll put all the links in for all the initiatives you're involved in and, and things that you yeah. think people should look at and read and I'll we'll make sure we'll that those, uh, we'll those tapped in but um, yeah cheers for, your, cheers for your time thank you Bob fantastic